Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened, or it will be opened to you. In verse 8, for everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, have good things to those who ask him? In the seventh chapter, Jesus has given a series of exhortations. Our responsibilities towards those who are saved, don't judge too harshly. To ourselves, by all means, judge. And to the ungodly, don't give holy things to depraved people. Now the Lord's attention turns once again to our, heaven, to our Heavenly Father. <clears throat> it's a command he gives in verse 7. And then we diligently seek God's will. We have confidence in verse 8. Jesus promises to reveal his will if we ask. And then Jesus offers a comparison in verses 9 and 10 and 11. He reminds us that if we, being sinful, have the ability to give good gifts to our children, how much more will our sinless Heavenly Father impart good gifts to those who are His children? It's been my experience that often Christians act as if they are unbelievers. As if God really isn't there or that he doesn't really care. And ironically, some unbelievers and atheists act as if they believe in a God. You know, there really are very few real atheists. Most are armchair atheists. They're willing to debate the issues in the safety of government schools and universities I heard the story of a young scholar at a Russian university. The question was asked on a test, what sentence of Marx is written on Lenin's wall? The student was almost certain that it was religion is the opiate of the masses. But then he started getting bothered by the question. It started to eat at him. And finally, he decided after school that he was going to walk the five miles to Lenin's wall. And when he got there, he basically read the words, religion is the opiate of the masses. And then he dropped to his knees. He held out his hands and he goes, oh, thank God. In the crucible of real life, people believe in God and they pray to God. Many years ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book entitled, He is There and He is Not Silent. And the book prompts the reader to consider the reality that there really is a God and that that God is the God of the Bible and that that God has spoken and everything he says is true. And in the book of Hebrews, of course, it says, who in these last days has spoken to us by his own dear son. 
God has not only spoken in the past through the prophets, but he speaks in the present. God continues to speak through his word. But he answers prayer. And so part of the point is that God promises that when you pray, he will answer you. Jesus has already talked about the essentials in prayer in chapter 6 in verses 5 through 15. The elements of prayer in chapter 6 verses 9 through 15. The teaching was brief and private and full of faith. So why does Jesus bring up the subject of prayer right after his discussion of the subject of judgment? Because Jesus understands that judgment requires wisdom and and discernment. And wisdom means that we're going to need a fresh and constant input from the counsel of God. Prayer gives us the opportunity not only to trust God's judgment but to impart discernment to us. When you ask someone something, doesn't it make sense to you that you want to know what kind of a person that person is? Are they greedy? Are they stingy? Are they generous? Do you feel comfortable asking them? And so, as you can imagine, what kind of a God is the God that you're praying to? Is he wonderful or reluctant, generous or stingy? Jesus assures us that God is wise and that he is a loving heavenly father. One who not only hears but answers prayers. And by the way, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said, forgive so that you'll be forgiven in chapter 6 verses 14 and 15. Fast and God will give you spiritual substance in chapter 6 verses 16 through 18. Jesus said the disciples' goal isn't to lay up treasure on the earth but in heaven in chapter 6 verses 19 through 21. The disciples' integrity and purity and trust and respect, remember, are all linked not to some outward religious activities, but to an internal transformation that takes place from the inside out. If you trust your heavenly father, you have faith that he believes And you believe in him that he'll hear you and respond to you. And the fact of God's goodness isn't wishful thinking on the part of Christians who hope that it's true. God isn't, isn't good because I say so. And God isn't good even because you say so. God is good because Jesus says so. He's incapable of lying about anything. And so God promises to hear us. Look what it says in verse 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is both a command and an invitation. Ask, seek, knock. What's wonderful about the verse is it itself it forms an acrostic, A-S-K. Ask, seek, knock. It's an amazing promise that Jesus makes. Now remember, like his teaching on judgment, this teaching offers us an immediate context in the Sermon on the Mount. 
and the Bible as a whole. When Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, does he mean anything? Jesus is encouraging us to ask for God's wisdom and discernment in the context of judgment. Remember, that's the immediate context. What better way to get wisdom than to ask for it? If any of you lack wisdom, James will later write in James chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach. And it will be given to him. Without reproach means God won't hold out on you. That God isn't reluctant. That God isn't looking for an excuse to deny your request. But rather he's looking for a reason to give you what it is that you need. Some have suggested that this verse means, well, you can write your own ticket with God. I've even heard failed, false teachers make that statement. You can have whatever you want. Some believe that this is some sort of blank check. And all you have to do is fill in the blank. Does Jesus suggest that we have a right to ask for harmful things, wicked things, evil things, you who are good parents. If you have a five-year-old and the five-year-old says, hey, can I have a loaded gun? Are you going to go, sure, honey, just, you know, make sure that you keep the safety on. That's not what you do. You're not a complete idiot. You know that there's certain things that you are not going to allow your children. Why in the world would you think that your heavenly father would allow you what your own mother and father would never give you? Well, does it mean that the unbeliever or the make-believer can create their own reality or generate wealth through sheer willpower? Does this mean that you can ask God absent belief in God or even obedience to God? Is this a license for cars and rich and and wealth and Super Bowls and winning lotto tickets? Can you go into the 7-Eleven and go, now God, I I claim a winning ticket in Jesus' name. I'm going to go in there and... And scratch these things off and expect to win the lotto. Is that actually what this is saying? Of course it isn't saying that. Jesus has already made it clear that external riches are no guarantee of inward spiritual success. Does this promise relate to people who have no relationship with their heavenly father? They have no intention to obey his word or his will. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Why would John say, we ask, but it's, we are asking in the context of understanding what it is that he wants from us. Of course that's what it means. We also have to have the proper motive. James said in chapter 4, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures, unquote. John MacArthur writes, and I quote, God does not obligate himself to answer selfish, carnal requests from his children, unquote. And I would add, foolish. We must have the right motive. And we have to be willing to submit to God's will. 
And again, some foolish faith teachers have made the statement. Now, wait a minute. Thy will be done. Thy will be done. Now, that sounds like a prayer of unbelief. And I'm thinking, are you a complete idiot? Have you never, ever read in the scripture where Jesus himself said, pray this prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Jesus, in the midst of his own difficult journey that he's going to have to make to a painful cross in order to die for your sin, says, if there's another way to accomplish your forgiveness and reconciliation for you, let's find it. Nevertheless, Not my will, but thy will be done. Sometimes children, clever children, will pit one parent against another. They'll go to their father where there is a certain expectation of an answer. Then they'll go to their mother where there's another expectation of an answer. Jesus said, ask your heavenly father. Jesus never said, ask my mother. And there's a reason why. Because Jesus knew that your heavenly father knows what's best for you in all circumstances. By the way, when you read that verse, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The Greek tense of the verbs are very, very interesting. They're in the present imperative and continual. What that means is keep asking. So we might say ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Find and keep finding. It's also in the, in the answer. Knock and keep knocking. The idea being, well, let me see if I can put it in terms that everyone can understand. We, if we were to give an example of the present imperative in our own language, if I said something like, always turn off the lights when you leave. It is something that you need to do now, but it's also something that you need to do over and over and over again. And so what Jesus is basically saying is, ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. Why? Think about the context of the sermon for just a moment. We've gone through chapter 5. We've gone through chapter 6. Now we're in chapter 7. Over and over and over again, I've repeated to you, the sermon's theme, if we were to boil it down to two words, would be true righteousness. Jesus is contrasting the outward act and the inward condition. Jesus has described true righteousness as practiced by believers. Poverty of spirit, humility in the heart, sorrow for sin, meek and teachable, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And so part of the challenge becomes in that context, under these circumstances, is that really who I am? Am I really humble before God or is there still some pride? Do I still sorrow over sin or am I content or indifferent towards my sin? Am I waiting for his mercy? Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Am I merciful or condemning? 
In my heart, am I pure or impure? Am I a peacemaker or am I a troublemaker? And in my own wisdom and in my own power, I will forever fail. We need God's grace and we ask for it. We need God's strength and we ask for it. We need God's wisdom and we ask for it. And we keep asking for it and we keep seeking it and we keep finding it. Can you hear the Sermon on the Mount or read the Sermon on the Mount? And somehow conclude, wow, Jesus has a whole different idea of what it means to have a right relationship with God than I thought. Remember, Jesus has been contrasting the outside with the inside. Well, I go to church, I have a Bible, I say church-like things. And all the while, Jesus is looking directly inside of your soul. And he's saying, you know what, I still see pride and I I still see impurity. I don't see humility. Instead of, of, of encouragement, I see condemnation. And so we continue to pray and we go, Lord, there's something wrong with me. There's something inside of me that remains broken. Imagine that you read the Sermon on the Mount. And you somehow convince yourself that you need to turn over a new leaf. And you need to be a better person. And then you fool yourself into thinking that you are a better person. Until every day reminds you that there's still something wrong. That there's still something broken. And that you haven't arrived at the place that Jesus is requiring. God requires poverty of spirit. He requires humility of heart. And then we're reminded that no one by themselves, no one apart from Christ, no one apart from grace, no one apart from the gospel, no one apart from the Holy Spirit will ever come close to achieving the heart condition that Jesus is describing. And so you wake up one day and you look inside of your heart and you realize that very little has changed and you keep asking and you keep seeking and you keep knocking the prayer power says J Hudson Taylor has never been tried to its full capacity. If we want to see mighty wonders of divine power and grace wrought in the place of weakness and failure and disappointment, let us answer God's standing challenge. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Jesus isn't saying anything that hasn't been said before when it comes to the reality that an invitation is being made for you to cry out to God and say there's something wrong and Lord I believe that you can make it right. In Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13 the prophet wrote and you shall seek me and find me when you shall search with, for me with all your heart. God isn't playing some sort of cosmic game of hide and seek. 
God is looking for a reason not to run away from you, but to run towards you. Francis Fenelon, who was a French Roman Catholic missionary to the Huguenots, wrote something powerful. He wrote, and I quote, Tell God all that is in your heart. He wrote this over 300 years ago, way before there were computers, way before you downloaded or uploaded programs. But he said, tell God all that is in your heart as one uploads one's heart, its pleasures and its pains to a dear friend. Tell him your troubles that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys that he may sober them. Tell him your longings that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes and that he may help you conquer them. Talk to him of your temptations that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved tastes for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you to yourself and to others. If you thus pour out all your weaknesses, needs, and troubles, there will be no lack of what to say. You will never exhaust the subject. It is continually being renewed. People who have no secrets from each other ever want for subjects of conversation. They do not weigh their words for there's nothing to be held back. Neither do they seek for something to say. He writes, they call out of the abundance of their heart. Without consideration, they just say what they think. Blessed are they who attain to such familiar unreserved speech with God, unquote. Have you ever prayed? And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed. And you've sought and you've sought and you've sought. And you've wrestled and you've wrestled and you've wrestled. And sometimes God says yes. And sometimes God says no. Or sometimes God says I have something better for you. Sometimes God says wait. And you pray and you're filled with doubt. And you're filled with fear. And you're filled with worry. The Bible says pray some more. Seek some more. The word supplication, by the way, means to beg. And you may think, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like it when God makes me beg. Well, what about pleading? What about crying? What about prolonged prayer? What about insistent prayer? What about demanding prayer? Is it beneath your dignity? The Bible is filled with people who begged God and pleaded with God and wept before God. Jacob wrestled with an angel all night long in Genesis chapter 32 verse 6. He was getting ready to cross the river Jabbok. He was trying to make his way back to the place where God wanted him to be. And he cried out and he prayed and he wrestled with an angel. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And he sent over the cattle and he sent over the sheep and he sent over the camels. 
And when he sent over everything that he had and all that he had left with his family, then he sent over the wife he wasn't particularly fond of. And then he sent over his children. And then he sent over the wife that he was fond of. Until all that was left was just him. There was no one else left to send. And he wrestled with an angel all night long. Mordecai and Esther prayed and fasted, neither eating or drinking, until God gave them a settled peace. The people of Nineveh mourned and wept over their sin, praying for God's mercy, asking to postpone his judgment. Moses prayed that God would not destroy the children of Israel. Daniel prayed and he prayed and he prayed until God revealed to him the true meaning of the vision. The apostles prayed and prayed and prayed and they waited until the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And so we ask, And we ask over and over again, and we ask sincerely, and we ask in faith, and we pursue God. We knock, quote, like a human father. The heavenly father uses these means to his children. Courtesy, persistence, diligence, D.A. Carson writes. R.A. Torrey lamented the average believer's indifference to prayer by writing, quote, how little time the average Christian spends in prayer. We're too busy to pray, and so we're too busy to have power. We have a great deal of activity, but we accomplish little. He writes, the power of God is lacking in our lives and in our work. We have not. Because we ask not, unquote. Is your heavenly father reluctant to grant your request? The Bible says no. Prayer isn't laying hold of God's reluctance. It's laying hold of his permission. If you're wondering if God delights in watching you squirm, you would be absolutely wrong. This is why Jesus gives God's pattern when you pray. In verses 9, 10, and 11, he says in verse 9, Or what man is there among you? If he has a son, asks for bread, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The Lord employs a clever illustration, but it's not just an illustration that relies on logic. It's also an illustration that relies on love and he appeals to both. He appeals to the fact that parents love their children. If human fathers who are by nature evil, that means fallen, and again, everyone reading this verse, if you then being evil should forever, forever, forever abandon the foolish and sinful idea that people are basically good, they're not. They're basically evil. They're evil by nature and they're evil by choice. 
Jesus doesn't say, if we then being evil. Because Jesus isn't evil. At all. He's sinless. And perfect. If human beings are not able to rise to God's perfect standards... If human beings are able to give good gifts to their children, and they really are able to give good gifts to their grandchildren, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Again, he's making the note that human parents by and large Love their children. Are there tragic exceptions to this rule? Are there men and women who experienced unspeakable horror and grievous offense? Are there exceptions? Of course there are. The rabbis would ask the question, is there a man who hates his son? The right response is typically going to be, Under most circumstances, the answer is no. Fathers love their children. D.A. Carson writes, quote, No parent would deceive a child asking for bread or fish by giving him a similar looking but inedible stone or a dangerous snake. The point at issue is not merely the parent's willingness to give, but their willingness to give good gifts even though they themselves are evil, unquote. You know, I've eaten some fairly strange things in my life. Some people call it fear factor food. When my father introduced me to alligator tail, he goes, just think about it as being the other green meat. The other green meat? What's the other green meat? Frog's legs turtle soup. Here, even in in Colorado, there are places where you can eat rattlesnake. I remember I had a a person from Africa, and I took him to eat at the the fort there off of uh, 285, and he's looking at the menu, menu, and he sees rattlesnake. And he goes, are the fangs still in it? I go, no, no, they're, they're taking out the fangs. But he tried it. I believe Jesus in part is saying no self-respecting Jew in his right mind would kill a snake and pass it off as clean to his children. John MacArthur writes, a loving Jewish father would not deceive and defile his son into dishonoring the word of God by tricking him into eating ceremonially unclean food, unquote. And I think that there's something to that. The reason why I think there's something to it is because you can't fool God into granting a request that's going to make your life more difficult in the sense of, Honoring God and pleasing God and walking with God. Jesus destroys the theory that human beings are are by, by and large good. 
but he affirms the reality that human beings are capable of at least doing something good every once in a while. Rodney Dangerville tells the story of, of as, as a young man, he was lost at the beach and he's looking for his mom and dad and he stops a police officer and he says, hey, can you help me find my mom and dad? And the police officer looks at him and says, I don't know, kid, there's a lot of places where they could hide. <laughs> and sometimes that's the way we again think about God, that he's ditched us, that he's abandoned us. That he stopped looking out for us. We can joke, but God isn't. He isn't playing hide and seek. People are by nature self-centered, not God-centered. And because we are evil, both by nature and choice, it sometimes clouds our judgment. It sometimes corrupts our judgment. But God's looking for a reason for us to hold on. What kind of a God is God? Our Father is loving and he's good. And the Lord isn't looking for a reason to mock you or refuse you or trick you. You know, in the ancient world of the Greeks and Romans, they had plenty of stories about the trickery and the mockery and the duplicity and the betrayal of their gods. The gods of Greece and Rome were sometimes petty and self-serving. There was the goddess Aurora who fell in love with Titonus, who was a mortal youth. And Aurora was the goddess of the dawn. Zeus, the king of the gods, offered her any gift that she might choose for her mortal lover. And Aurora very naturally chose that Titonus might live forever. So she said, will you grant that he lives forever? But she forgot to ask Zeus that he would remain forever young. And so Titonus grew older and older and older and he kept living and he kept living and he could never die. And as he grew older and older, the gift became a curse. And Jesus tells us that God not only hears our prayers and answers our prayers, but answers them with love and he answers them with wisdom and he answers them with perfect understanding. He's not trying to figure out a way to trick you into something bad. Have you ever prayed a prayer? Do you remember when you were in high school? Oh God, please let me marry Patty Elser. Lord, she's got beautiful brown hair and brown eyes. She's the most beautiful girl who's ever, ever walked the face of the earth. I can't be happy. I can't be satisfied unless I'm married to Patty Elser. In Jesus' name, amen. God said, no. I go to the high school reunion. And I see Patty Elser. And I pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, for ignoring and, and, and making it possible that I could be married to the beautiful, wonderful girl that I am married to. You may not see clearly into the future of what is best for you. 
Jesus tells us that God not only hears our prayers and answers our prayers, but answers them when love and wisdom and perfect understanding and our imperfect understanding will sometimes butt heads with his perfect will. God, God will always answer our prayers his way in wisdom and love. Will he sometimes test our sincerity? The answer is yes. Jesus invites us to consider that God is good and he's willing to give good things to those who ask him. What kind of good things? You know what's interesting? The text is silent. It doesn't give us a laundry list of all the good things. John Newton, who of course wrote the very famous song Amazing Grace, also wrote, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. I love that. Just a couple of quick thoughts on prayer before we close. There are lots of reasons to pray. We're given repeated commands to pray. Remember what Jesus has said right here. Ask, keep asking. Seek, keep seeking. Knock, keep knocking. James wrote, you have not because you ask not in James chapter 4 verse 2. How much do we miss because we just simply refuse to ask? We have the examples of Christ. We have the examples of the apostles in the New Testament. Paul wrote, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God will surround your hearts, which passes all understanding. Prayer is always the right thing to do. God is good. And so how many reasons do you need? Prayer defeats the devil. Prayer saves the sinner. Prayer strengthens the saint. It sends forth the laborers into the field, heals the sick, glorifies God, gives good things, accomplishes the impossible, imparts wisdom, bestows peace, keeps us from sin, reveals the heart of God and the will of God. Prayer should be both humble and bold, sincere and simple, persistent and spoken in faith. But the Bible also says that some things hinder prayer. Yes, there are some things that will block and hinder prayer. Unconfessed sin in Psalm 66, 18. Insincerity in Matthew 6, 5. Carnal motives in James chapter 1, verse 5. Unbelief in James chapter 1, verse 6. Satanic activity, Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. Daniel prays. He prays like there's no tomorrow. And there's an invisible war going on all around him. But he persists. And he continues. 
The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, that sometimes trouble in the home or marriage in the home can in- hinder prayer. Robbing God can hinder prayer, Matthew, Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Refusing to submit to biblical teaching can hinder prayer, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 24 through 28. There's reasons to pray. And there's reasons to believe that he hears. And there's reasons to examine, evaluate, and ask and answer the question, is there anything, anything at all in my life that's hindering me in my fellowship, in my intimacy with the Lord? Dr. Helen Rosevere, who was a missionary to the Republic of Zaire, formerly the Belgian Congo, told the following story. I'm going to read it to you. She wrote, a mother at our mission station died after giving birth to a premature baby. We tried to improvise an incubator to keep the infant alive, but the only hot water bottle we had was beyond repair. So during devotions that morning, we asked the children to pray for the baby and for her little sister who was now an orphan. One of the little girls responded, dear God, Please send a hot water bottle today. Tomorrow will be too late. By tomorrow, the baby will die. And dear Lord, send a doll for her sister so she won't feel so terribly alone. That afternoon, a large parcel arrived from England. Eagerly, the children opened the package, and much to their surprise, under some clothing, they found a hot water bottle. Immediately, the little girl who prayed so earnestly to to delve deeper shouted, If God sent that, that I'm sure that he sent a doll. And she was right. The Heavenly Father knew in advance of the child's sincere request because the package had been packed some five months earlier. A ladies' prayer group and mission group got together and they began to pray about the specific items that would go in that box. And although many of our prayers may not be answered so dramatically, the Bible encourages us ask and keep asking, to seek and to keep seeking, and to knock and to keep knocking. I made up a little acrostic this morning. Prayer. Prayer pleads the name of Jesus, John 14, 13. You get to go to God in Jesus' name. If you have a right relationship with God in Christ, then you get to pray to your Father. You know, I told the story before my mother died that if someone happened to be in Hesperia, California and they went to 1213 Chestnut Street and they knocked on the door of my mother's house and they said, hey, I'm from Littleton, Colorado and I go to Gino's church and he said if I was ever here that I could knock on your door and I could have a cup of coffee or some iced tea and she would let you in. She'd give you something to drink. But if you said to her, now empty out your bank accounts and give everything to me, she'd slap you upside your face and ask. She wouldn't ask you to leave. She would make you leave. And trust me, she could do exactly that. 
we plead the name of Jesus, we get to go before God. R, we regard the work of Jesus. In other words, we're praying in response to and in relationship to what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 22 where the writer of Hebrews says, guess what? Because Jesus loves you and because he's died for you, you can go into the most holy place. And A stands for abide in the person of Jesus, John 15, 7. He who abides in me and my, if my word abide in you, you can ask what you will and it shall be done. Y stands for yields to the will of Jesus, 1 John chapter 5 verse 14. E, expect a fulfillment of the promise of God in Christ, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And R, remember, remember Christ's conditions. Keep asking. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. We know. We grow. We begin to understand something. That God isn't just simply in heaven listening to you shout and scream. He's in heaven. And he thinks of you every moment of every day. He is searching your heart and your circumstances. And he knows that there's some things that are growing bigger and better. And there are some things that are crowding and discouraging and keeping you from maturing. And rather than get frustrated with yourself, keep asking. Lord, there's pride in my life. Lord, there's still impurity in my life. There's still compromise. Lord, I want to be different. Lord, I want to change. Lord, I want to grow. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do pray that as we begin to understand all that the Bible says about you in context and in relationship that you so care about us, and Lord, I pray for that man or that woman who shouted, screamed, I need things to be different. Or, I can't change. Lord, I pray that you would remind them that you can change. That Jesus is at work, loving us, forgiving us, molding us, shaping us, growing us guiding us and that we have to cease foolish prayers and selfish prayers but Lord in your love and your grace in your mercy and in your patience that you will allow us to pray foolish prayers so that we might at one point pray at least one faithful prayer to turn from our sin, to turn from you, to turn to you, that we can experience forgiveness, that we can experience hope, and that, Lord, we can grow, grow up. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.